Well, welcome to Hope Leads. I'm Wes Lane. There have been a lot of surveys and stats gathered over the last few years regarding the state of the Christian church. Whole books have been written on the subject and concerns expressed about trends, etc. Now, typically when I say the church, I'm contemplating the body of Christ. In other words, that group of people who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But today, we're going to be talking about the most traditional expression of the church, and that is the local congregation. In an age in which those checking the religion box are widely and increasingly checking none, how does the church of the city, as expressed by local congregations, shift culture such that the trend line becomes one in which people are yet again drawn to become a part of the body? My guest today is Josh Curry, founding pastor for Frontline Church, which has several congregations meeting in different communities in central Oklahoma. In the interest of full disclosure, I confess that Josh has also been my pastor for the last 15 years, which, by the way, kind of weirds me out. That's uh, I'm older than I thought I was. But, but here's the deal. I didn't invite Josh on the podcast because he's my pastor. I invited him because I felt like he's deeply moved by the subject matter and as a generator of hope. So all that said, welcome, Pastor Josh Curry. Wes, thank you, buddy. Glad to, glad to have you here today. This is, this is really, um, this is really divi- delightful. And by the way, uh, I, I got to say, seeing you in person, you know, we've been seeing in this pandemic thing, I've been watching you online, and church services online and all of that. And, and now that we're in person, you know, your beard is a little grayer yes. than 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 that appears to be online. I just wondered, do they do they yeah, man. do they do anything? Yeah, that? pastor years are kind of like dog years. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Well, it it is uh, it it that's that's kind of like when I was district attorney and my wife uh, noticed it. Uh, I started getting gray quickly. Yeah, it'll and do it. It's it's kind of kind of kind of wild like that. And she says, you know, oh, good, honey, I. Maybe you'll start getting some respect. And I thought, well, what are you saying? Let's not overreach. That's, not, <laughs> that's right. Let's not hope too much. Well, let's let's uh, let's get started. But before we do, Josh, uh, if you could just share a little bit. I mean, why are you a pastor? Yeah, thank you, man. Um, so I, I look back on my story, and I think, like, at the heart of answering that question is the grace of God. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like, I, I think the more I get to know the love of God in Christ— the more I've been captured by just how much I need him. You know, I needed him at the beginning of my walk with Jesus when he saved me as a young guy that was wrestling with my own darkness and turmoil and um, sort of a shame identity and a lot of brokenness. Mm. I needed him then. And now, you know, at 42 years old, after walking with Jesus for over 20 years, I'm still kind of captured and amazed by the grace of God that he loves me, that he would choose me, that he'd go after me, that he'd forgive me that he called me a friend. So like at the end of the day, I think expressing my vocation as a pastor is first rooted in being a Christian and just trying to be a disciple and follow Jesus. And then um, secondly, I think that the Lord gave me a real love and a burden for our city. Uh, throughout my early 20s, I really hated the Midwest, full disclosure. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> you're not from here originally. I'm not originally. And, you know, I was, I, I kind of had a bad attitude about what you might call sort of older brother Christianity. And what I saw as sort of pharisaical, dead works religion. And I, I had a chip on my shoulder that was pretty big. And something happened at about age 25 where the Lord gave me a deep love and burden for this city and a desire to spend my life here and a love for the community and a real passion and burden for the local church. So, you know, at the end of the day, man, it's like God rescued me. And in wrestling with what do I do with the 
talents and the gifts that you've given me? How do I glorify you? He's made it really clear that the best way I can serve him in my calling is to love the local church, to pastor a group of people, and to try to encourage and support church planners wherever I find them. So, you know, when, so within that phrase, there's probably, uh, if, if we think about, it, no matter what our vocation might be, me as when I was practicing law or something, you know, it, it, people have different passions within that context. And so when you think about your, your love for the work that you do, what would you say is, is within, the, the, within that context is the, is the, the angst or the, or the passion or the, you know, the thing that really pushes or propels you along? Yeah. Thanks, man. I, you know, it's, it's hard to say one or two things because there's so many things yeah, yeah. that energize me about getting to love and serve the local church. Mm. Uh, I think one of the things I've been wrestling with is that just in the incarnational ministry of Jesus, you have the very presence of the living God in the flesh, loving local people in local places. And you have Jesus really not traveling that far. And, you know, he's, he didn't have a international ministry. He was rooted and grounded in a rural place went into urban centers occasionally, but for the most part, he was doing big things in a small place and loving people. And as broken and hurting and sinful people encountered the presence of God in Jesus Christ, lives were changed. And then you have the death and resurrection of Jesus. And instead of his ministry ending, you have him sending the Holy Spirit to the church to be the ongoing ministry of Christ's presence in the world. So like, it's really exciting to me to think about the local church bringing through the Holy Spirit, the very presence of Jesus into dark and broken places. Well, that's one thing that I've always picked up from you is that is the passion for the local church. I mean, I know you've been hugely involved in, 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 in planting churches and in, in, in really around the world. And, and so this passion that you have for the local church. So if we think about the, the the congregations that Frontline has in, in central Oklahoma here. And 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 I, I it occurred to me that, okay, so in the book of Revelation, you see uh, you see Jesus sending a letter to seven different churches. Uh, and he's got and, and sometimes he's got great stuff to say and sometimes uh, kind of embarrassing stuff to say most times, I guess. And so so I'm just wondering if if Jesus were to pin a letter to the church at Oklahoma City, what do you think he'd be saying to us? Oh, man. Uh, so, you know, on one hand, that feels a little bit above my pay grade, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I I can tell you hopes and I can tell you burdens and I can tell you concerns. I, I would not claim to sort of have the divine perspective on the church of the city in any way, but like, I do know that when you think about the local church and you think about the calling of the local church to work out discipleship and mission. So if you kind of break it down between two things, it's two sides of one coin. Mm -hmm. The local church is called to the work of spiritual formation, mm -hmm. which is not just building crowds, but making disciples. So leading people to become fully devoted followers mm -hmm. of Jesus, to suffer well, to not waste their lives, um, to walk with Christ, not just on Sundays, but all seven days of the week, and to take those 168 hours and to spend them for the glory of God in ordinary ways and sometimes in big and extraordinary ways. And then the second calling of the church is the work of mission. So that's to tell people the good news of Jesus and to demonstrate the love of Jesus through deed. And, um, you know, I think it's very true and important to think about the global church, the universal church, the church invisible, just the profound reality that when a person is born again, they're added to the body of Christ. 
But when you think about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, when you think about formation and mission, that's stuff that happens in the context of actual people in actual places. It's very local. It has flesh that's hung on the bones. It's not something that becomes sort of a just me and Jesus endeavor. It requires community and formation and iron sharpening iron and the willingness of a group of people to say, hey, we're going to follow Jesus and imperfectly on this side of heaven, but by God's grace in growing degrees of clarity and passion, we're going to follow him in this town and we're going to make much of Jesus and we're going to love and serve people the way that he would in his flesh because he is now um, still bringing his presence through his church and through his spirit. Well, okay, so so uh, pressing on that a little bit more, so... Uh, and recognizing that you're you're not Jesus, I'm not Jesus, uh, but but we end up we typically have an opinion of how we think we're doing. So uh, and so that's really what I was kind of contemplating. I think so. What would Jesus write to the church at Oklahoma City? And first of all, where would he where would he mail that exactly? But but what. Um, um, when we think about the different, whether it's formation or or mission or or uh, and, and all of that, what, what do you think that? How do you think we're doing? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like in some ways, if you listen to a lot of different historians, they're they're very they're very reticent to ever say this is an unprecedented thing that's happening. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like a good historian is really careful with pretending like this is brand new. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we really are living in some pretty wild times, and the rate of change, the way that culture shifting, the transition, even in this part of the world from Christendom to sort of a post-Christian worldview, those are all real. And uh, what I think about in this particular moment, especially in the midst of being in a global pandemic, is that the West is probably more anxious as a culture than we've ever been in the history of civilization. Mm. Like we are chronically anxious. And when you think about the work of Jesus to bring presence and to bring peace, part of being a disciple of Jesus is not that we're never gonna have anxiety, but it's learning to practice our peace as the people of God in the midst of anxious cultures and anxious systems that actually helps people to experience presence, like peaceful presence in the midst of anxiety that's rooted and grounded in the promises we have in Jesus and the promise that he's not going to leave us and the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of the Father because the work of Christ. And so to be a people in the midst of the anxiety of this world and all of those anxieties, shifting culture, um, the polarization of the left and right in the U.S., yeah. the racial dynamics in our country, the fear of the pandemic, the economic downturn. There's so many things that are anxiety-inducing in this moment. And I think to be a peaceful presence in the midst of that is not to put our head in the sand. Like, that wouldn't be being a prophetic witness. But it's to, in the midst of all of these challenges and all this adversity and pain and drama in the world, to actually say, hey, man, our treasure is in Jesus and to know Jesus is to actually know that your future is secured and you have a home with him and he's not going to leave you or forsake you. And even going back throughout the whole history of the church in anxious times, one of the greatest ways that the people of God have borne witness to the resurrection of Jesus has simply been a refusal to let the drama and instability determine their joy. Like to be people that can grieve, but can grieve in hope 
and can actually maintain a measure of gladness as we worship Jesus, who's the sovereign Lord of history, even as things are changing, we don't know what's around the next corner, to resist the anxiety and the cynicism that's so rampant today as the people of God and to cultivate worship and hope and trust in the midst of this moment is, I think, maybe one of the greatest invitations of Jesus to our church in this particular time. Josh, I really agree with you on that. I mean, it has been, when you talk about anxiety uh, and all, I mean, mean, there there was a sense of anxiety going on out there even with before the pandemic. And then it just went ballistic. Yeah. And so, so when we think about the church, and and then when you mention the left versus right, and and, and all of the chaotic stuff, uh, the us versus thems, and all of that, you know, I, I just have this this sense that 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 many times the the church has gone missing, in the or they've or they've been really, or really maybe they're more known for just picking a team, uh, as opposed to. What is their what is their role? What what should the role be for? How does the church of the city become that 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 the solution bringers? I mean, we the church of the city has a reputation. I think. I mean, I think, and I'm sure. I suspect it's different in different places uh, uh, and and others. I mean, do, do you what do you think the reputation for the church of of, of this city is? I mean, just within your context, and I realize you can't speak for all the churches, but you have. But you mentioned earlier that there was a chip on your shoulder back, you know, 15, 20 years ago almost, in which you really had to kind of get past your your impression of the church of the city. And so um so so what do you what what do you what do you think that the 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 people looking at us who are aren't believers? What do you think they would say? I know you talk to folks all the time like that. I mean, do they do they express what their impression is of the church of the city? Yeah, I think, you know, thinking about my most pagan friends, mm-hmm. uh, most of them have been a part of the, the local church and at some point decided to walk away. And I think there's probably a lot of valid critique and criticism that leaders in the local church and members of the local church ought to take really seriously. There, There have been ways in which we haven't offered the grace of Jesus to the world. There's also ways in which there's a simple offense when you hear the gospel of Jesus, Yeah, you know, the the claims of his lordship. Yeah. So it's a both and. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's ways in which, um, even in this pandemic, I'm a bit disturbed by how often local churches have thrown all of their energy and weight into sort of pretending like nothing's happened. Really? And, you know, and I'm not against like doing online services. And, sure. Like sure. there's a there's a time and a place for that and to leverage technology for the good of people is a good thing. Yeah. But in the midst of a time like this, to sort of pretend like this is business as usual is to me a bit a bit deaf to the reality of our city. And uh, you know, I think what tends to happen again and again is that we define the local church just based on what she does. And a lot of times we have a pretty anemic version of what she does. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to sort of uh, the reformers and them talking about what the definition of the church was, they had some really good stuff, right? Preaching of the gospel and the sacraments and church discipline, all that's really important. Um, But what tends to happen now is we even reduce that even further to either just a Sunday service or just a few programs, and we tend to forget the essence of the church. And it's in the essence of the local church that we actually get to see the identity and action of God's people and the identity and action of God. So if you go back and think about the metaphors God gives us in Scripture to describe the church, like in each of those metaphors, what you have is this invitation to the world, 
to people that are far from God and people that are followers of God through Jesus Christ to actually experience a transformation of identity as they see themselves through the eyes of the gospel, through what Jesus has done. So take like uh, the bride metaphor, for instance, Mm -hmm. like that's a metaphor of pursuit. It's a metaphor of fidelity. It's a metaphor of God's commitment to pursue those that kept cheating on him with false lovers and to continue to go after them again and again and again through the prophets and through messages and ultimately through his son, Jesus, to actually win the hearts of his people. So when you take that metaphor and you really think about what does that tell us about the role of the church in the world, it's that the message that we have to proclaim to those that are far from God is really the scandalous love and grace of God in Jesus, that like he has bent over backwards He's condescended to us in our sin and brokenness. He's not stayed aloof or distant from the suffering of this world, but he's become enmeshed in it through the incarnation to pursue us. And like, if we really believe that, the local church would be way more passionate in our worship. You know, we would be way more Mm -hmm. serious about our growth and holiness and trying to maintain fidelity to Jesus. And we would be way more serious about our mission, going after people that haven't yet heard the love of God for them in Jesus. And I think you could do that with all the metaphors. We, we could talk about temple and we could talk about body and we could talk about the household of God. Like each of those metaphors is way deeper and more rich in revealing the action and identity of God in Jesus and the action and identity of God's people than just sort of a reductionistic list of the programs that we've got and the times that we meet on Sundays. You know, I heard uh, somebody say one time, <clears throat> it might have been um, Tim Keller uh, and it was a profound thing, and you touched on it right there that I'd never thought about. And his comment was, as if we, uh, if we really, really did have a sense of God's grace, in other words, that you, you really don't deserve any of this, then, and that it's all gift, it, you, it's, a, it's an extreme gift, that, that would compel you to want to pursue let's say justice issues you would you would you would you would want to because you got a break you you uh didn't get what you deserved if we think about that within the context of sin and all of that that then you would be looking at those out there that that are oppressed the the people that that and where the humans the image bearers of god who whatever they believe uh, but but they're they're living at a at a less than what God would be happy. You'd be pursuing that out of just the the sense of of how you you don't deserve what you got. So um, what um, so so talking about the, the the folks that when you mentioned that there are people that you've talked to and they've been they've been hurt in one thing or another. I mean, how do you how do you uh, how do you how do you love people? So we got people that are that are listening right now. I guarantee it right now that they are probably in that category of they've been wounded in some way, and I and I and I, I can't even imagine all the, the the various ways that people do get wounded, and because anytime you put humans together, it's it's messy. And so, but how do you? What do you say to people that are listening? That I mean. How do you encourage them if they've broken away out of out of that woundedness? What do you say to them uh, that might help them find a path uh, in some way? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it's like the the grief and the pain that people have experienced in the local church is real. 
And, you know, I don't think that you can be a person that's been a part of the local church for very long and not have scars to show because you said it's like on, on this side of heaven, we're this really weird community of sinners and saints at the very same time. Like the grace and love of God has changed lives and given us new standing and brought us into this community, this fellowship, but we're still broken and we're still sinful and we still damage one another. And I think at the end of the day, the thing that we've got to come back to again and again and again is that the good news of the gospel is not the good news that the church is the answer. The good news of the gospel is that the finished work of Jesus is the answer. Mm. And what he's done for us through his cross that defeats sin, that breaks down the barrier between us and God, that overthrows the the domain and tyranny of death in his resurrection, which actually is this demonstration that God is, he's the one that's going to get the last word on all the suffering of creation, you know, that he's going to finish the good work of the new creation that he started in Jesus, and he's going to make everything that's wrong right in Christ. Like, that's the good news. And the miracle that happens in our hearts when the Spirit of God opens our our eyes, if you will, to see that good news, then leads us into this imperfect community called the church, where we get to receive that need of grace and extend that grace to other people. So it's not that the church is perfect or that we should, like, the answer is not that we do better PR for the local church or that we come up with propaganda to pretend like we don't have warts. Yeah. Like, Christ yeah. is in the process of of working for his bride and meeting his bride and forming his bride so that on the great day, she will eventually be without spot or wrinkle or blemish, but we're not there yet. And again and again, we've got to come back to just the sober reality that one of the things that's beautiful about the church is its imperfection. Like every time I'm a part of Christian community and disappointments happen, every single time that someone hurts me or that I fail to keep my commitments to them, that's a tangible reminder. That's an in-fleshed reminder of just how badly we need Jesus. And that the thing that brought us together was not our superiority to anybody else. Like to be a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. Like every follower of Jesus needs to realize that like he saved us not because of our good deeds or our worth and our own actions or because we were really important. He needed to draft us on the on the team. Like he literally saved us when we were his enemies and made us family. And that reframes the Christian community in our imperfections around receiving grace and giving grace and working for a little bit of improvement, working to actually mature, to become more hospitable, more holy, more kind, more compassionate to the world. And that's a slow, long process. Like, you know, it's it's interesting when we start to really receive on a deeper level, just how amazing God's grace is for us, how it becomes more difficult to withhold forgiveness to those that have hurt us, including other Christians. Like it's what reframes our relationships around mercy. Instead of demanding our rights, we see that God and Jesus has laid down his rights to make us family. And that, that really does have the power to change the way that we do relationship. Well, recognizing that, yeah, so the so the person out there listening right now, I mean, the great, it, it, I mean, when you were talking, it, it reminded me of uh, years ago, a family member who, who would, man, he would just always pick out um, a great example of, of a Christian stupid and, um, and that it would be somebody who would, and when I say Christian stupid, I'm talking about somebody who was claiming to be a Christian, and yet they were doing something that was just 
totally like off the books. And and he would say, well, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want anything about it. Oh, he would revel in that. And 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 but the truth is, and I would say, you you got the wrong role model there. I mean, you're 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 giving us the rest of us a bad rap for this guy. Jesus would be. You know, he had a thing, a little thing to say about hypocrites, and and it wasn't nice at all. And so, so what's the next right step for somebody? I mean, what's you know? So the person that we're talking to is the person. Yeah, they've had that. I mean, I mean, is there anything you just say, even a baby step? What 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 would that be? I think the first step would be sort of a vertical step, like to remember in this moment just how amazing the demonstration of God's love for you is that, you know, you and me in our humanity, which is amazing and full of value and dignity and worth, but which is also profoundly bent and twisted and sinful and like not able to keep God's perfect standards that God in his mercy actually came after us, that he sent his son for you and for me to die in our place, to be raised from the dead, to offer us hope and, uh, to, to actually extend to us an invitation to sit at his kitchen table as family members with him. I think that's the first step is coming back to just the scandal of grace and the love of God in Jesus and his willingness to receive you. That like, no matter what you've done and no matter how you've drifted from that invitation, he still offers it. And that's the story of the prodigal son, right? It's like you have this son that goes away from his father's house and he squanders his father's inheritance. He essentially says to his father, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have your money. Mm. And then he comes to this point of desperation where he returns to his father's house, rehearsing the plan to offer himself as a hired servant. And the father, instead of giving him what he deserved, the father actually sprints after him, covers him in a clean robe, puts a ring on his finger and says, my son that was dead is alive. And like, that's the posture of your heavenly father towards you in Jesus. And that's a posture that actually invites you to come and work out the implications of that in a community of Christians in the local church so that you can grow and figure out what that looks like. What do you think uh, as we as we look at, um, at, the, at the top of the, podcast I was just talking about how so many people are living or leaving or 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 not just having anything to do with now and I've heard different opinions on how accurate some of these numbers are like Gen Z or millennials or or whatever but you've had a you've had a lot of people I, I remember uh, at, at when, when we first started like 15 ish years ago there was um a lot of young people there, a lot. And, but at the same time, I know a lot are leaving or, or are claiming none, if you will, on religious. There's really not even coming in the first place as opposed to leaving. Why do you think that is? I think the reason we're experiencing so many difficulties, pushback, hostility towards the claims of Jesus is incredibly complex. Like you're, you're talking about all kinds of dynamics at play that have led to a lot of cynicism and skepticism, um, radical individualism, uh, sort of a, uh, a, uh, a sense in which like every institution's failed them. Like if you just think about children of the boomers, like they've watched almost every time honored institution at least feel like it's eroding and going down the toilet. You know, think about how difficult it is to have a lot of hope that marriage is a worthy institution when you've gone through painful divorces. Um, You look at our higher education and we've got skyrocketing costs, 
and you see a lot of graduates that are becoming more and more cynical that they're going to be able to make a good wage and find a job when they graduate. You could talk about like the skyrocketing rates of fatherlessness in the West and the whole institution of family being called into question. And the same things happened in a lot of ways in the Western church. Like we have had scandals exposed. We've had celebrity pastors. We've had all kinds of abuse and an unwillingness for church leaders to name that abuse and repent of that abuse and do the things that needed to be done. So there's all kinds of dynamics at play that would lead to a suspicion of any authority claim. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of the gospel, there's an invitation to receive love and mercy, but it is an authority claim. It's Jesus saying that, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when you've been conditioned in a postmodern moment to think that every authority claim is just a power grab, it's hard to believe that the one who has ultimate authority also became a servant to rescue you. And of course, postmodernism is essentially saying there is no truth. Yeah. You've got the relativation of truth. You've got the isolation of the individual. Like there's so many factors at play. But here's the thing that's fascinating to me that I think gets forgotten in this conversation a lot. In every moment in history where the church has experienced persecution or pushback or decline, God has been working in the shadows to revive, renew, to discipline, and to reform his church. So like if you go back to the whole history of Israel and the way that they would walk away from God and there would be times of of uh, captivity, times of invasion, like, and then they would turn back to God and come back and put away their idols. And then you get to the coming of Jesus and you have, even in the first hundred years of the church, Christ, like you said, having to rebuke some of the churches in Asia Minor for their apostasy. Like there's always been this cycle of decline and darkness and resistance to God. The, the, The church has a tendency to drift away from God's word and God's authority and to become assimilated with the culture. And I think we're living in a moment where a lot of that's being exposed. Mm. And what I have a lot of hope for is that historically, God's always working in the shadows. He's working to judge things that need to be judged in the church first. He's working to um, sort of expose things that need to be exposed. And I think we're at a moment where in a lot of ways in the Western church, we've relied upon a lot of production. We've relied upon celebrity power. We've relied upon sort of our willing, our, our ability to kind of make things relevant, meaning like, how can we present ourselves as, as cool as the people in our city? Mm. And, you know, I, I get those missional attempts and I've been a part of some of that, mm. but I think we're in a moment right now where we have to come back to the reality that without the presence of the living God in the church, and without the person and work of Jesus being the center of the church, we're not going to get any traction. And um, I think that that's actually a really beautiful invitation from God in this moment. You know, that's really an interesting thought. It's like periods of time like this in which cynicism is great, uh, the church is kind of viewed as like, is it relevant or, or is it just missing uh, and all of the above? And yet we see... In the in this uh, in the pandemic, for example, all of these people, it's like they start coming back to a, and ask the question. Well, they're it's like they're drawn back to, to um, in their fear. Fear heightens, and then what happens? People are watching. You know, like even on the audio, the video church services, you hear reports that people are like, yeah. I've heard this from multiple churches that they, they're the attendance. That they couldn't get from people showing up, they're they're off the charts uh, from people watching. 
I mean, what's all that about? Yeah, I think I think maybe the most appropriate book in the Bible to try to diagnose our cultural moment might be Ecclesiastes. Ah. And like Ecclesiastes is about existential angst. Hmm. It's about this guy who had more resources than you or me that's done this good life experiment to try to figure out where the good life is. And he tries the high road of philanthropy. He tries the high road of education. He becomes this amazing guy that's that's uh, supporting the arts in his community. Like he does everything that the high road says we would need to do to find a rich and fulfilling life. And he gets to the, to the end of the high road and he's like, well, vanity of vanities, it's all still empty. And then he goes low road with Augusto and he explores just basic raw hedonism. Yeah. And in the midst of his hedonism, like he he literally trains his body for drinking, right? He throws <laughs> these massive drinking parties. He eats the most delicious food. He explores all the delights of sex. Like he goes low road with Augusto and he gets to the end of that and he's exhausted and he says, that's also vanity. And I think we kind of live in this moment right now where hmm. we are trying to combine high road and low road. We're trying to find the good life. And at the end of the day, we're getting to this place where the weariness the exhaustion of trying to find meaning and identity apart from our creator and redeemer is starting to, it's starting to, uh, it's starting to elevate a level of despair. Mm. That's actually an opportunity for Jesus to stand up in the public square and say, Hey, is anybody thirsty? Mm. And, and that's the message of Jesus. It's like, there are so many things that God has created for us to enjoy and we keep asking those things to be the ultimate fulfillment and security of our lives, and they just can't do it. And so in a moment like this, yes, the opposition's high, it's difficult, and there's a lot of pain, and I don't think that we're even near the end of it. I think things are going to get way harder before it gets easier. Yeah. But the hope is, and the witness of history is, that at the center of the gospel is a resurrection, that in the midst of death and it looking like evil and sin wins, God vindicates his son, Jesus raises him from the dead, and at the very heart of the Christian faith is that kind of power. It's the power to demonstrate the very life of God in, in Jesus Christ. So personally, as difficult as this season is, I think for Christian leaders and members of local churches, there are so many clear invitations in this moment to sort of not rely on our gimmicks and to actually embrace a little bit of that disillusionment and to stop thinking that our sort of hacks and techniques and technologies are going to be the answer to the angst of this cultural moment and come back to some basic desperation in prayer and in mission, realizing that if God doesn't move, man, like we're in trouble. Boy, Josh, that's so good. That, that just makes great sense. Um, and, you know, we'd be remiss, too, if, if we didn't talk, uh, speaking of cultural moments, uh, I mean, the, there is such an incredible uh, weight and angst right now surrounding uh, race relations right now. I mean, just just in the last few days, we you know we heard the the death of of George Floyd, and then and then there was uh, Ahmad Arbery before that, and there's just one thing after another, and and I and I. I, th I think about the relationships that that I have, and and, and heck, you've got with with uh, black friends, and and the fear that they that they are expressing, whether it's the fear for their child. I mean, I mean, it's they're thinking about stuff that you and I, as white guys, we never had to think about. How are we dressing when we go out? 
can we go out? I mean, what do you, how does the church step into this? I mean, it's, it's, it's a moment in which, um, well, and quite honestly, it, it, many times the church has been totally absent from the conversation, maybe from a lot of conversations. So what do you think? I think in my personal journey as a leader, as a pastor, and a, as kind of a spiritual father in our church, like this area has been maybe the most discouraging and painful of anything we've ever addressed in the history of our church. Mm. And, you know, like the, the angst and the pain and the, the sense of abandonment that so many of our black brothers and sisters have from their Christian white brothers and sisters mm -hmm. is palpable in this moment. And I think like the thing that's, that's so tragic is the gospel has certain fruit that it produces. And part of the fruit of the gospel is, is the fruit of reconciliation. It's the root of, it's the fruit of walls being brought down. And I think one of the tragedies in this moment is that it's for some reason really difficult for white churches to simply start with lament. Mm. Like I, I don't understand why it's so difficult to just obey the command of scripture and weep with those who weep. Mm. Um, because our communities of color are not just mourning the tragedy of another black man that was killed. They're mourning the reality that like, this is the same record playing over and over and over again. And the message from many people in the white church and many of the voices that are sort of tone deaf and not seeing them is like, hey, we've made so much progress in the country, get over it. And the reality is like, hey, man, praise be to God for whatever progress that we've made. But the living God demands that we actually, as the church, see the dignity of all human life and that we stand against everything that obscures the image of God in human beings. And that means we have to care about this. God cares about this, and he demands that we care about this. And I think, you know, one of the things that's, that I feel invited into and challenged by and overwhelmed by is leading a church that's still a majority culture church. Mm -hmm. we, we've, by God's grace, made strides with diversity. We're not where we want to be. Mm -hmm. um, we want to take more ground there. But still, as a majority culture church, one of the challenges that I have is, and, and really one of the demands of the Father, I think, that I have, and I think that other pastors should embrace, is to disciple people that see the world through a majority culture lens to actually do a little bit more work in understanding our history as a nation, to do a little bit more work in understanding the trauma that communities of color are still carrying, and to do a little bit more work in simply bearing with the burdens of our brothers and sisters that we don't fully understand. And like, man, like at the very least, we should lament and mourn and cry out to God for his mercy. Now, I know there's other solutions that need to happen. Like we need Christian leaders in every sphere to figure out these sources of systemic injustice and tackle those things. But at the very least, like the church should prophetically stand up and mourn, weeping with those who weep, lamenting what's broken and not just and corrupt in our country. And we should disciple people that don't understand the intricate, complicated dynamics of a country that has such deep, dark roots of racism um, we've got to do the work to figure that out a little bit more. So, so let's say we've got a pastor listening right now, and he's pastoring at the typical, uh, you know, uh, size church. There's no more, you know, maybe a hundred people, 
in, in his congregation, and he's wondering, so what do I do? Okay, that makes sense, Josh. Uh, you're talking about how do we uh, lament together. What does that look like? What's an action step for uh, for that person? I mean, wh- how, do, how do, I mean, I know you, I mean, and, and lamenting, it's, you, when, in fact, when you were talking about how, how they are, we as the, the white church have been missing in action. Uh, it reminded me of of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from letters from the Birmingham jail, in which he's he's really he's really expressing his sadness for the the white church. Where are you guys? Uh, and and so so how does the, how does a pastor that's uh, that's listening right now that uh, is wondering what do, what do I do with my congregation? How do I step out? How do I lament? But also, how do I let? How do I lament with uh, someone else? With 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 another? Yeah, man, that's such a great question. And sort of the default in this moment is, if you care, to try to equate outrage on social media as action. Yeah. And I think we just got to recognize, like, we're in a moment where the echo chamber of social media is not changing culture. It's actually. It's actually making the conversation more crass and it's further numbing us out to what's broken in the world. So the best place to start with this is to start in relationship. Mm. Like we're never going to take strides toward being um, more more gospel-centered in the fruit of the gospel as it relates to race dynamics in our country until we have friends from different backgrounds that we can sit with on a Friday night and hear their stories and be learners and to be brothers and sisters with them. And that's been like maybe the biggest, one of the biggest gifts that the Lord's given me is just some of my friends that are men and women of color that have been able to speak into my life and address things that I didn't see and point out blind spots and to help me enter into their lives and their story a little bit more fully. Mm. Um, And then as a next step, there's so many things that we can do to just learn and to dig in and to engage the conversation and discipleship of the people of God in the local church. But man, it would be beautiful if it started with isolated white leaders in Oklahoma City who don't have friends that are men and women of color doing whatever it takes to become learners and brothers and sisters to our black brothers and sisters, our Latino brothers and sisters, our Asian brothers and sisters, our Native American brothers and sisters. Like, it would be a profound prophetic witness against what's corrupt and evil in this world if we simply started opening up our homes to people from different cultures and got to know folks. And we would be so much more enriched in our leadership if we did that. We'd be enriched as just human beings. It would grow us. It would it would deepen our souls to do that, mm. but it would also change the way that we engaged and lamented and led our churches through the implications of the gospel. You know, Josh, that, I just think that's so right. You know, we, we, we sometimes think that there's going to be some uh, grand play here, that, that, that with this one big chess move and and that's going to shift everything. But boy, you know something that I've, I've just picked up over the years that God moves at the speed of relationship, and and that and that just requires. So if it, that requires uh, taking the, the the next right step. So somebody that's listening right now, I mean, it's not, it's it's just not a function of. I mean, don't break it down into such big chunks. I mean, it it literally uh, may be that. That uh, if you don't, if you're not acquainted with somebody, you you start identifying. Well, how might I become acquainted with somebody? I mean, I mean, where do I, 
where do I go to 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 find people who don't look like me? That 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 uh, and and maybe it's showing up at a at a black church or an Hispanic church. I mean, that's going to be uncomfortable. But but I tell you what, it's uncomfortable for them when they show up. Yeah, that's right. And in our uh, majority culture institutions, I mean, that's that. There's a there's you know goofy's goofy. You're going to feel goofy. But that might be just the. I mean, just you, you show up where where they are, and then you just and then here's the deal: you ask God for divine connections, and he's he's going to connect you up with with someone, um, and that and he's going to take you on a journey with that person. And, and like you, um, Josh, I just think you're you're you've really nailed it. It's 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 going to be relational. It's going to be relational. I think so much of this too is is that this 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 fear is 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 just so rooted in our just not having any context, any relationship with anybody who doesn't look like. So you're so you're afraid when you're around them. So yeah, and and that fear and misunderstanding even leads to not being willing to actually. Um, understand the anger, you know, like it's not to justify acts of violence in any way, like violence. Yeah. Some of the violence happening in Minnesota is it's certainly not going to result in healthy change. You don't defeat evil with evil, but at the very same time, like violence usually is a manifestation of people that feel like they don't have a voice acting out of that desperation. And so like, we've just got to do a better job of engaging this and understanding. And part of the thing too, is like with the identity politics of our country right now on both the left and the right, Mm -hmm. I think it's important for Christian leaders to just evaluate, are you either more conservative or more progressive than Jesus on certain issues? I think that's really difficult because we we really mm-hmm. do have a lot of I would even say idolatry of politics. Yeah. And when it comes to some of the platform issues on the left, if Jesus was at a progressive campaign rally, he would probably stand up and denounce some of those beliefs around sexuality and the treatment of the unborn and um and if he was at a political rally on the right, he would also be championing the cause of the poor. He would care about immigrants. He would fight for widows and orphans and for, for racial reconciliation. So I, I just think like sometimes we have a hard time following Jesus into some of the social implications of the gospel because we have political ideologies on both the left and the right that keep us from being really intellectually honest about where Christ disagrees with us. Boy, uh, you know, on that note, Josh, that's that's a that's a good place to end on to, for for and for folks to consider and really keep in mind is that are, is your worldview if you're is your you you profess to be a follower of Jesus, well, uh, you know, you know Jesus is not a Democrat and he's not a Republican, and so where are you lining up with with where he's at on on these issues and and I and I just think that. Uh, my gosh, um, our ability to to take a deeper deeper dive and self-examining, and just if if the goal is to be Christ-like, and that's what everybody talks about. Well, the goal is to be Christ-like. Well, then, so what does that really look like? And and are you consistent with that? Yeah, and I'll tell you something that's interesting. It's like the places that we feel resistance. So those places where we feel ourselves wanting to buck up and push back. And especially when we're reading scripture, the places that we start to feel a sense of offense. Yes. Those are the places that we really need to pay attention to what's happening in our heart. 
because that's where Christ is wanting to meet us and to lead us into some deep growth. You know, where, where there's resistance, there's usually going to be some really interesting and transformative encounters with the voice of the living God if we'll listen to him. That's a great point. You know, I mean, how many times when you're talking, I think, how many, how, when have I learned the most? When I am going in the midst of pain and frustration and adversity, or is it when everything's awesome and, and hunky-dory? <laughs> Probably not then. Well, Josh Curry, thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor Josh, for your time. Thank you for what you do. Uh, thank you for um, just 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 having the heart that you have for the city. Thank you, and, and I'm and I'm particularly glad. Thank you for staying here and uh, uh, not heading back to the beach on the on the west coast from your childhood. So anyway. So thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Wes. Love you. Love you. So let me give you some concluding thoughts. If Hope were a person in the room, what would she say to us? Well, I think, first of all, she'd say that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that an unchanging God designed, built you, and sent you into a moment of history as part of his loving strategy to transform a chaotic world and and make it good again. You are called as change agents. Hope would tell you that she flourishes when we listen to God and set goals for our lives that press us further toward becoming that person God has always been willing for us to become. Hope would tell you to set action steps towards achieving those goals. They don't have to be giant steps. Start with baby steps so you can be encouraged along the way. But hope would also tell you that you've got to not just make plans to step, but you must exercise the willpower to just take that next right step. Step by step by step gets you to the destination God has for your life. It's the long obedience in the same direction. And finally, hope would tell you that God sees us not as we are, but as we could become if we will dare. It's the same for our communities. As followers of Jesus, you are a sent people and all humans should flourish because God's kids are in town. What evil thing dies because you exist? No one else is coming. You're the generation sent to your community in this moment. You're it. Press into God's purposes for your lives, and you will discover that hope abounds and that Jesus is still the God of the impossible. Thank you for joining us today on Hope Leads. I'm Wes Lane. Once again, I'd be honored if you would take a moment to rate this podcast, review it, subscribe, and share it with someone who needs hope. We want to thank Brianna Gaither for the song, I Won't Rest Until, from her album, Vanity. Remember, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who is willing for us to live meaningful lives of profound impact. I invite you to just show up and watch God show off. (laughs) 